Uh, if you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and open that to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians is a, a New Testament letter. Um, we, uh, we are committed to preaching the Bible here at Mosaic Church, and so we work, um, you know, verse by verse, essentially, through books of the Bible. And so we're working through uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians and we're, uh, you're, if you're here for the first time, uh, you're here jumping in at a great time. We're only in chapter 1, uh, verse 7. And so I've promised that this is not going to be a, uh, you know, a five-year-long sermon series. I'm kind of going slowly in this opening section, and then we're going to pick up the pace as we, as we move through the rest of it. Um, but we're in chapter 1 of Ephesians today. Have you ever walked into uh, the middle of a conversation not knowing what's going on? Um, I do it all the time. It's just kind of the nature of, of who I am. I love being, uh, you know, I'm a little extroverted, so I like being in the know, and I like being in a crowd of people I don't know. And so I oftentimes find myself in the middle of a conversation trying to catch up. And, you know, you've got to ask all the background questions, and it's like, you know, they're, they're sitting there thinking, okay, this guy just came in. We've already been through all of this conversation, but you've been there. You know the feeling. Um, that's kind of be the feeling of, of today's passage a little bit. We're going to pick up in, in, in verse 7 of, of chapter 1, and, and we're kind of right in the middle of a conversation. Uh, that, that section, verses 3 down through 14, I, I had mentioned is, is one long sentence in, in Greek. It's 202 words long. And so Paul kind of, he, he does this, this praise of rambling in, in, in a sense. And, and we're jumping really right into the middle of it. But uh, if you were here last week, I, I had mentioned how a lot of commentators and kind of Bible scholars acknowledge that there's this kind of Trinitarian, this, this Father, Son, and Spirit type of framework to this section. And so last week we looked at what the work of the Father was. We looked at the, the blessings of the Father. And, and this week we're going to look at what the Son does, the work of, of Jesus on our behalf. And then next week we're going to just take those last couple verses and look at the Spirit. And so today our attention will be on verses 7 down through verse 10. So if you're following along, otherwise the words are on, uh, on the screen there for you. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. In him, that's Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of the living God. Let's ask him to bless the preaching of it. Our gracious God, we come now and, and we plead for your help. Lord, our hearts and our minds are distracted by many things. Lord, there are many things that grab for our attention, whether it be rest, uh, hobbies, work, family, uh, but Lord, we, we ask now that you would help us, that you would come and that you would help our hearts to be in tune to what you would have for us in your word. And so Lord, we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. 
Uh, before we move back to Albuquerque, um, we lived in, in Texas, and we lived in, a, in an army, army population just outside of the gates of Fort Hood, Texas, in Killeen, Texas. And if you've ever been around a military installation, um, and I think it's true of most of them, I haven't lived around a ton of them, but, but you'll, you'll know that um, when you go out of the gates of a military installation, they're, they're littered with, with businesses, you know, a lot, of, a lot of barber shops and a lot of different things. And, and one of those frequently um, placed businesses around military installations is a, a payday loan uh, business. You're familiar with these payday loans? Um, the, these are these are shisty businesses, um, and it's not they don't just target military, but but they're there with intentionality. But whether you're familiar with the payday loans or not, um, here's how they work. You are out of money. You're strapped for cash, and you need to to pay a bill. You need to to do something, and so you go to one of these payday lenders. And they will loan you money based on your prior work record. They'll, you'll take in your pay stub and you'll show them, hey, I've got a job. You know, that's why they go to the military guys, right? They've got a steady job. They know another check's coming. And so they, you take the, the pay stub and they'll, they'll loan you money based on your prior work record. Or even if you don't have a, a great prior work record or a steady job, somehow if you're in this desperate condition, they will, they will t give you a loan, but, but at, at great high astronomic gas gouging rates. And so, so really, they prey on, on these desperate type of people. Um, the way the payday lender works is they, they victimize people that are in desperate need. All right? And I think sometimes, even as Christians, we kind of think God's like a payday lender in some ways. In other words, we think that, that grace might be available for us if we're really desperate, right? Like, if we're really in a hard place, God is going to extend that, that helping hand to us, but we think it's conditional. We think that, that somehow his extension of grace to needy people is either one based on our prior work record. In other words, you have proved yourself worthy of the grace, so I'll give you the loan. Or we're in some sort of desperate condition where, where we have nothing to offer based on our prior experience, but if we can prove ourselves later down the road, we can pay the loan back. In other words, I think there's something in the, the kind of the, the, the hidden parts of our hearts that thinks that God can't be as good as he says he is. One of my great convictions as your pastor and the one who gets to, to be in the pulpit regularly in front of you is to debunk all of the myths that we've grown up with about God. I want us to begin to peel those layers away and to look at the Bible and tell us, to look and tell us what God is actually like. Here's the big idea of today's text is, is that God is no lender of grace. He's a lavish giver of it. He's not a lender of grace. He's a lavish giver of it. I want our minds to come into this text and to see about how it talks about God. In fact, I've pulled that word lavish from the text itself that God has lavished his riches and his grace on his people. That word is, it's so, it's so filling. It's, it's this idea of super abundance. It's this generous, this liberal, this open-handedness, this, this unending source of grace and God loves to give it out freely. And so today we're going to look at how God is no lender of grace. He's a giver of it. Here's how I want to uh, kind of pull out of the passage. I want us to first look at the price of redemption. 
And then I want us secondly to look at the plan for restoration. The price of redemption and the plan of restoration. Um, I don't know if you've ever met somebody with a uh, fully steeped religious vocabulary. Um, this is somebody, you know, that in the, in the produce department, you know, at, at Smith's, that can, can kind of turn the, the, the conversation about weather and fruit into somehow the King James Version is the only legitimate version of the Bible. They'll, they'll kind of sift into these and thou's really quickly, and, and all of these religious kind of terms start coming out, and you just kind of start backing your card up. You might not know that many people like that, but they're out there, so just be aware of that. But there's, there's people that are just really steeped in religious language. It's kind of departed from ordinary conversational type of language. They're, they're out there. Um, one of those words that I think has become just so just jilted with religion jargon is the word redemption. The word redemption, it, it's thrown around. If you've been around Christianity or the church or the Bible, you kind of know, yeah, we're redeemed. You know, there's a redemption that's ours. And we kind of just use this word and we, we don't really know what it means. And so I, I kind of just really wanted to spend some time really breaking down. This isn't just a word study, but breaking down what exactly redemption is. Because redemption actually is not a, a religious word. It's actually not a, even a, a originally Bible word. It was, it was a word that was used in trade and in commerce. In fact, it was, it was a word that was used in, in the slave trading of first century, um, the ancient Near East first century kind of culture. Now, slave Slavery was not like our slavery and the history that our, that our country has in slavery. It was, it was different. Nonetheless, it was still a possession of a master over a slave. There, there was, it was people possessing on some level. And the word redemption simply meant to be loosed or to be let go or to be let free from the master's you know, control over you. And so really the Bible hijacks this, this secular word and it, and it takes it and it uses it for us to understand what the Bible has to actually say about us. And, and what the Bible says about us is because the way Paul is using it here and, and it's used scattered all throughout the Bible is there's this assumption that we are in bondage to something or someone. In other words, there is this, this assumption that we are bound and captive and we cannot set ourselves free. Now, I want to clear up kind of just some of the uh, assumptions that are made on that. A lot of times, I think what we believe is that that bondage and that captivity is, is to our enemy, the great deceiver, Satan, as he's presented in the Bible. And, and, and the way that the Bible actually presents it is that the, the, the bondage that we're in is, is not to something outside of ourselves. It's actually to something that's inside of us. And the Bible calls that sin. And so sin, in, in this, this very broad way, is that internal fleshly inclination to run from God. And so I don't know when you hear the word sin, you might think of particular actions, things that we do that are either wrong or right, and, and, and sin is that action. That's actually the way Paul uses it in a rare instance here. If you look at the text, I just kind of want you to glance at it with me, in the, in the middle of verse 7, it says that in him, that's in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. You see that word trespasses? That is a unique way that Paul, usually he just uses the word sin, singular. It's just kind of that general condition. Here he uses the plural form, and he's actually talking to the things that we commit. Let me, uh, let, me let the Bible just, just tell you about our condition to sin. Jesus himself said this in John chapter 8. He said, truly, truly, 
I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Paul, in one of his other letters in Romans chapter 7, would say this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. The Bible presents us and it depicts us as enslaved to sin, and here's the reason why. It's because sin incurs debt. Okay, we're all familiar with the idea of debt. Let me, just, let me just illustrate very simply and in very plain language how sin works. Let's pretend you were my neighbor. Sorry about that, but you're my neighbor, and I go next door and I ask to borrow your lawnmower. Okay, I, I don't really need it. My lawn is, is hurting at the moment. There is no need for a lawnmower. But in this hypothetical situation, I ask to borrow your lawnmower, and I take it over to my yard, and I'm mowing, and I hit a rock, and I break your lawnmower. Okay, so the, the lawnmower is now broken. This is the sin that's been committed, the act of sin that's been committed. So here, my neighbor and I have this broken lawnmower in between us. Okay, the lawnmower needs to be either repaired or replaced. A debt has been incurred. Do you see that? So right now, because of my action, I have sinned against my neighbor by breaking his lawnmower, and it needs to get repaired. Now, the, the options are twofold. One, I can pony up the money, and I can buy him a new lawnmower. Or two, he can forgive me for my debt that I've incurred against him, and we can be all clean and clear. Now, here's the difference. One is that I will take the penalty on myself, or the other is that the neighbor will take the penalty, but the, the reality is somebody has to take the penalty. The debt has to be absorbed. So it is with sin. You see, the, the, the realm that most of you and, and mostly I operate in is the realm of justice. So in, in, in the realm of justice, in that scenario, most of us would say the right thing would be for you, Adam, to go ahead and pony up and get your neighbor the new lawnmower and to make things right. It's for the guilty party to pay the penalty. But the realm that the Bible operates in is not the realm of justice, but it's the realm of grace. And the realm of grace does this. It says the innocent party will pay the debt for the guilty one. You see, that's the way sin works against us. And, and I mean, think about it, even in your own life, uh, how often do you try to buy yourself out of your sin? In other words, how often are you trying to make payments against the sin, the debt that you've incurred against God? I mean, let me just throw out a couple options, see if any of these uh, hit you in different ways. Uh, so sometimes church, right? We're, we're in church, and so sometimes going to church feels like we're making a payment, right? It becomes obligatory. Like, you know, I, I know I should go to church. You know, I know they're meeting there. I know God tells me to go to church probably somewhere in the Bible. It's probably a good idea. So there's this, this sense of obligation, and you feel like in some silly way, it might be subconscious, but in some way you're putting a trinket or making a payment towards your debt you've incurred. Or another way that we might off, on, honestly do this is through giving, right? We, we give, you know, we, we, at the end of the service, we're going to give you an opportunity to give financial support to what we're doing here. And in you, that becomes this sense of obligation, this duty. And that's a very real way of putting a real payment towards something that you've incurred against God. And, you know, maybe if you had a really bad week, you better kind of give a little bit extra, you know. 
Maybe serving, you know, serving, you know, we'll, we'll, you're in a church plant, so you're going to be asked to help out in a variety of ways. And, and, you know, when the pastor approaches you and says, hey, I'm, I think you might be gifted in serving this way, in that you hear this kind of this guilt-laden, kind of low-level, just, just push towards, oh, I have to serve. You know, God, you know, God wants me to, so I'm going to do it. And it, it's all, it's all duty-driven. Here's how your perspective on all of that can change. You have to understand how big your debt really is. You have to understand how big the mountain and the piles of debt that you've incurred against God are. Let me, let me just for a moment tease that out. Here's what that looks like. We have an infinitely holy and just God. He's always existed. There's never been a time when he was not. He holds the entire cosmos together. He, nothing happens apart from his sovereign hand over everything. And here's you, you're, you're the creature. He's made you to sit under his rule, and you've rebelled against him. And so not only the little actions, but the, the big actions, the little actions, they all incur this infinite debt against an infinite God. And so even if God were to instill this system where somehow we could pay him back, you'll never pay him back. And even if you were the best of the best, perfect church attendance, faithful giver, served on every ministry team available to you, even if you did that, you would only get to the zero debt and you would still not be good enough to be in the presence of that God. Jesus tells us how redemption is actually found. Redemption is found through the blood. If you look at the passage, it's very explicit it tells us that in him we have redemption through his blood. Why blood? Well, blood is the lifeline in the Old Testament. And so here Jesus comes and he spills his blood to satisfy the debt. He pours out his life so that others might have life. And so the blood is the redeeming price for people that need pardon. Jesus would say this. He would say that I came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's the work of Christ. That's the work of redemption. Here's how I want to give you a, an application to this. I want you to know today that redemption is a present and existing reality for the believer. It's present and it's existing now. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of um, Juneteenth. Juneteenth is a, it's one of the most historic commemorations of the ending of slavery. On June 19th, 1865, the Union soldiers finally arrived at Galveston, Texas, in order to declare that the, the, slave, the slavery in our country had been ended. Now, if you're a history buff, you'll know that the, the Emancipation Proclamation actually happened two and a half years earlier when Lincoln gave that. And so there's a variety of, you know, people speculate as to why it took two and a half years to get to the slaves to understand it. But, but the real celebration is not when Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation was declared. The real celebration for many African Americans is Juneteenth, June 19th, because on June 19th was when they started actually living their reality. That the, the, the declaration had been made two and a half years prior, but they were living as slaves up until then. We do the same thing. Believer, hear this. The declaration for your freedom was declared when Jesus on the cross uttered, it is finished. It is finished. He, 
he paid the full penalty for all of our mountains of debt. It was satisfied. It was done. The work was complete in totality. The balance was zero, and not only zero, but you get the righteousness to give you enough to get into the presence of the living God. And so here as believers, I think many of us hear the idea of redemption and we're waiting for that arrival of that, that great and glorious day that we sang of when, when the bride will be united to her king and, and it will be a glorious day. But believer, that day is for you now. To stop living in the bondage of our sin, to, to stop letting it hold us captive because the declaration's been made, it's finished. What it means to be redeemed is that you get a new king. Every person in this room has a king that rules their life. And you are bound to that king. You're captive. You're in bondage. And the good news about Christianity is that when you are redeemed, when you are trusting that Christ's work on the cross in his resurrection, his life, death, and resurrection is enough to satisfy the mountain of debt that was falling on you, you become under the rule of a new king, King Jesus. And for some of you, that sounds terrifying. For some of you, you have all of these layers of Christianity and you think it's just this rule-oriented thing. Like, what, what does that mean? Like, I don't know that I want anybody to be my master. You know, I don't, I don't want a king like that. And you, you think his rule is harsh or you think that his rule will, will just take all of these joyful things away from you that you enjoy. But the rule of this king is actually delight. It's lavishment. It's a king that actually will do anything to be with you. He, he moved heaven and earth in order to be with you. When that becomes a reality, you know you're redeemed. And so the question is now, as we kind of move towards the second half of the passage, is, is there more of a reason why God redeemed us than to redeem us just from our badness? In, in other words, is it just to make us right with him? Is that the only thing God's doing? I mean, we talk about that a lot, and it's a big piece of the puzzle, but is it the only thing? And my answer would be, well, no. So let's look at the, the, the second part in verses 9 and 10 as we look at the plan um, for restoration. Have you ever been on the wrong end of a secret? Um, I'm not a good secret keeper. I love to spill secrets, so if you've got secrets, I mean, you know, pastorally sensitive things, you can trust me. But anything above that, like, I'm probably going to spill it. Like, if you got a gift for someone, I'm going to tell them. Like, I, I, I can't hardly wait for Christmas. I love telling people what they're getting, all those kinds of things. But, but have you ever been on the wrong end of that secret where you feel like you're kind of out of it? You don't, you don't really know the full picture, and you're kind of trying to piece things together? Um, you know, until Jesus, until the hero of the story arrived, that's actually how God's people were. They were kind of these blind people trying to put the puzzle together. Now they, they had a, a dark room with all the furniture in it. They kind of knew that there was this redeemer coming and they kind of knew he was going to be a king. They thought it would be more, you know, governmental rule than it would be spiritual. But they kind of had an idea, but they, they were on the wrong end of a secret. They were lost until the hero showed up, Jesus. Um, I think some of us feel that way about Christianity. I, I think some of us feel like, I don't really get it. Like, I, I know he died on a cross to do something, but I don't really get the big picture. Verses 9 and 10 actually reveal that to us. It says that, that God was revealing the mystery 
for us. And what was the mystery? Look at verses 9, 10. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. All of it to set up this, verse 10. It was a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, that is Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Listen, when you believe that God is working in history to make everything sad come untrue, to make everything wrong right, to bring wholeness and restoration to the entirety of our existence, not just to our personal existence or our eternal ever after, some things in the Bible begin to make a lot more sense. Let me, let me just, again, throw a little more Bible at you. I think we've got these verses. So if you're familiar with the Bible, you know Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. And in the Lord's Prayer, in the very opening, if you grew up in church, you'll know it, it says, Our Father in heaven or who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so even in that very simple prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, he's beginning to give them this big picture that, that something's going to happen between heaven and earth, that, that there's, there's this restoration that's coming. Or in his triumphal entry, uh, Jesus is entering Jerusalem to die on his cross. It's the last week of his life, and, and everybody's around crying hosannas and praising out, and the disciples are confused, and the religious people are concerned, like, what is going on? What kind of king is this? And Jesus tells them this, speaking of the people praising them. He says, I tell you, if these people were silent, everybody that's praising him, the very stones would cry out. In other words, there is something about a connection between creation longing for redemption and longing for restoration that goes way beyond us. The last Bible verse I'll read to you is in Romans chapter 8, right in the, the, the heart of Paul's epistle to the Romans. He says this, it says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And then I'm going to jump down just to the end of that verse. It says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Listen, our fragmented and broken world is crying out for wholeness. It's crying out for restoration. It's crying out for redemption. And, and what, what Jesus, through his word here, is telling us is, is that's coming. That there is this full plan of God restoring all things on earth as they were, as they are in heaven. Here's what you need to know, that, that God's plan is bigger than bringing you to heaven. It's bringing heaven everywhere. Um, Listen, I, I try to refrain from kind of this, this only future thinking type of preaching. Like, I believe glory is going to be wonderful. I, I do. I think, I think it's going to be beyond our comprehension, and I, and I talk about it. But, but I think in this passage, what Paul's trying to do is to get us to grip the now realities of that. And so in my mind, as I'm thinking through this passage, is there any way in which this restoration of the whole creation happens now? And I would say yes. And here, here's, here's some spaces I think it happens. I think restoration happens, heaven meeting earth, in marriages that are broken and then restored. I think it happens when, when, when Jesus kind of gets involved in this really fragmented situation and he brings wholeness to it. 
That, that's, I think that's a sampling of what's coming. I, I think restoration to creation comes when, when an individual person's, uh, the, the grip that sin has on them is loosened. And so, you know, when Jesus, I'm thinking of that demoniac, when he came across the lake and this man could not be restricted and, and Jesus loosens him from his captivity, that's a taste of heaven coming on earth. And it happens in, in our lives. It, it happens to people that, that can't seem to control their thoughts. They can't seem to control their, the, the, the thrust and, and even the lust of their lives or, or, or what their hands do or their eyes see. That's when heaven releases us from that. I think uh, heaven restores us when loneliness is addressed through the, the local church. I think, I think we're a very lonely people. And I don't think that's the way God made us to be. And so I think when, when the community surrounds people that are lonely in their heart, you know, people that, that might be difficult or, or disagree with us, or they might not act like us or talk like us or behave like us, but when the community of God surrounds them and loves them well, that's heaven coming to earth. That's how God works now. I want to conclude with this story um, today. It's a, kind of an anecdotal story about the Russian Tsar Nicholas II. Nicholas II was a very uh, famous and, uh, you know, he was this trophy Tsar of Russia, and he was, he was very seasoned in his care for Russia. And there's this account in history that talks about one of his young officers, we'll call him Ivan, it's Ivanovich, but that's a mouthful, so we're going to call him Ivan for short. Ivan was also an honored and envied man in, in the uh, Russian services. Um, and there's this account of him where he is a smashed and contrite man. He's, he's utterly broken. And he's in this room, and he's, he's actually thinking about what's ahead of him. And what's ahead of him is this, this shaming, a public shaming. He's going to be exposed for who he was because what had happened was he had been living a lifestyle way beyond his means. He had been living the, the, the luxurious life, and he had been funding that through the government funds. He had been borrowing money, siphoning it off into his own uh, account with all intents and purposes to pay it back. But he, was, he had come to the conclusion that the, the debt had got too high. The mountain was too high. He was buried in it. He was going to be destroyed. His own reputation, his family's reputation, everything was going to come to an end. And so on this night, in this account, he's in this room and he's got the ledger books open and he's trying to somehow reconcile the account, somehow trying to cook the books in, a, in another way just to give him more life and another opportunity to pay the debt back. And at the end of it, he comes to the conclusion that he can't do it. He's, he's utterly buried by his debt. And he writes at the bottom of the ledger, he says, What I owe so great a debt, who can pay it? What I owe so great a debt, who can pay it? And the story goes on to tell us that he saw no other conclusion but to take his own life. And so he, he took a pistol and he went to the desk with the ledger books. And apparently, in this story, he fell asleep. And in the middle of the night, while he was sleeping, preparing to take his own life, uh, the Russian czar, Nicholas, walked by his office and saw the light on, and he went in to see what somebody was doing up at this hour, and he found Ivan asleep with the pistol on his desk. And he looked at the ledger, and he saw what he had written, what I owe so great a debt, who can pay it? And he scribbled at the bottom of it, and he left the room. In the morning, Ivan wakes up, and he, uh, he wakes up to realize that he had fallen asleep, pistol next to him, looks at the ledgers, and he sees scribbled under his own writing, upon awakening this, he says, the answer to the question, 
I will, Nicholas the Tsar. So Nicholas II comes in and he says, I'll cover your debt. I'll pay it. You're clear. And that would have held clout and he would have done it. If you're here today and you've heard some things that I'm saying about God paying at great cost to himself the mountain of debt that has come to you and you're not a believer, um, I think there are many of you who do believe in God, but you don't trust him. In other words, I think that you believe that God exists and maybe he's generally kind of a good, beneficent type of God, but you can't really trust him. In fact, things like this sound maybe a little too good to be true. But I know this, I know you want to trust in a God like this, and I know that a God who would give everything to have you is a God worth trusting. So will you, let me even evoke this response, will you today recognize your captivity and your inability to escape that mountain of debt? I mean, will you feel that burden and will you go fling into the arms of the lavish God who loved you enough to give everything to have you? I think the other majority of our group is, is believers, and, and I think you two believe in this God, but I still think that you struggle to believe that he could be this good, that a God could love someone like you that much. And so your inability to perfectly obey God leaves you discouraged, you feel threatened, and thinking that God will require some sort of payment back on this plan. You feel indebted to God. If God has been this good to me, let me show you how I'll be good to you, God. And the Bible tells us that the redemption is free and the grace is ours. Will you rejoice in the redeeming grace that God has so lavishly given to his people? And in response, will you come under that king and love him well? Because in the, in the story with Nicholas and Ivan, he, he went on. And he went on to live under the rule of Nicholas. And do you think that living under his authority was one of obligation or duty or guilt or indebtedness, or do you think it was one filled with joy and gladness and peace? May that be true of us today at Mosaic Church. Let's pray and ask the Lord to work in that way. Father, we, I come up here with a, an endless task to come and to attempt to explain the excellencies of your goodness toward your people every week. And Lord, they are they're inescapable. Lord, we cannot explore them too deeply. And so, Lord, I pray that, that on everyone that is here today that you would work in our hearts this, this deep love for you because you first loved us, that you gave everything, even the life of your own son, whom you have known before all of creation, and he poured himself out so that we could be free and clear uh, with you. Lord, would you help us to live under the rule of King Jesus? Would you help us to hear his words and to respond in obedience, not out of duty or obligation, but out of joy and delight? Lord, we long to be those people. So Lord, would you work that in our church? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.